American author Wayne Dyer observed that society always seems to honour its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. Well, we reckon it's time to put that standard to the test. Hi, I'm Waistcoat Dave and this is Confessions of a Troublemaker, the podcast from Compassionate Troublemaking. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, uh, fellow troublemakers. Thank you for joining us for a second week of the podcast. Um, it's really easy sometimes to get lost in one's own head when creating stuff. I it's been probably about four or five months since I last since I first recorded uh, an episode of the podcast, and I've been putting off editing and publishing partly because I hate editing, but partly also because of that fear. Um, of putting something out in the world. So the fact that some of you, many of you, who knows, but but the fact that there are people out there that are coming back and engaging with not only the podcast, but the the collective of compassionate troublemakers um, is a really meaningful thing. So thank you. Um, this week, I'm joined by friend and uh, inspiration, Math Potts, from the Camarados movement. Camarados is uh, a community that I've been a part of and been inspired by for close to a year, I'd say. Um, first of all, in the space of uh, public uh, living rooms and then moving into more recently with COVID, the um, spoon rooms and the, the idea about bringing people together to just support each other and share. And there's some really fascinating things around um, the non-facilitated nature of a space or at least non-directive nature of that space and for truth to come out and for individuals to make that what they want to make it and I love that I'm really drawn to that uh, I'm sure all of those things and more is what we're going to talk to Math about today um, so yeah I, I, there's not really much much more for me to say um, he is an inspiration I hope that you will take away from this uh, interview and this chat as much as I did. One thing to note is at the first half of the um, conversation, Math is out doing his own bit of compassionate troublemaking. So the signal is is quite poor and the audio his side is difficult to hear sometimes. I hope you bear through it. Uh, the second half does improve. Um, but also what I really think it shows is that this isn't a perfect thing. And I'm still getting used to creating a podcast and putting that out into the world. And things are on the go a lot of the time. And that's part of what being a compassionate troublemaker is about. It's about reflecting on things and building forward. Um, so there's a huge learning curve there. But the, I still really enjoy the very authentic, organic nature to the uh, to the conversation we have and yeah let me know what you think um follow us on twitter on social media on all the normal ways uh, and i'll check back in with you after the conversation cheers math thank you for for joining us thanks dave um and yeah so let's start with you um, doing a bit of an introduction as to who you are and what brought you into into the world of Camarados and what Camarados is. Right. Well, uh, I'm Matt Potts and uh, spent about twenty years working with people at the sharp end in homelessness, mostly, uh, but also mental health, addiction, 
on one hand and sorted fields. And uh, basically got a bit disillusioned about whether we were making a difference or not. Uh, particularly as we were never focusing on the things that seemed to really change people's life, which was friends and purpose. And I never asked people whether they had any friends when they left our services or whether they connected with their purpose, and yet those were the two things that seemed to turn things around for them. Mm. So decided to set up a social movement based on that. Um, you can't force someone to have friends and a sense of purpose, so what you can do is you can create a behavior and a space where this can happen. So we ask people to be a camarado, which involves looking out for other people. And when you look out for each other in a mutual aid context, you get both friends and purpose in one hit. And also people run public living rooms. And in public living rooms, uh, you go and be with other people. No fixing, no outcome, no agenda. You just go alongside each other. And what happens is people connect, make friends, get a sense of purpose. And that's the movement, really. We have a small team. We come up with stuff that helps people set up these public living rooms. Uh, it's called Public Living Room in a Box. And we send it out to communities and they create it themselves in parks, in shops, in prisons, in a hospital, in a college, wherever. I like it. Um, I guess a good way to framing it at this point is I myself have a public living room box. Um, right. And having that conversation with a few people around about what we can turn that into. Um, in the Midlands and in Birmingham specifically, um, is a really exciting thing. And it's definitely got me thinking about how we use space, um, which I think is a really, really key part behind compassionate troublemaking, is you know how do we work with what we've already got in our day-to-day -day lives rather than necessarily um, you know, seeing it something as, oh, we can't do that because we don't have this, 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 and this. We've certainly found that this helps people who feel trapped and stymied by the fact that they need to do a funding application to make something happen yeah. um, or be part of an organization uh, or have some relationship with the local authority. Um, we're just saying to people, go out into your street on Monday, make shit happen. Yeah. I think what's quite nice about that is also whenever we're talking about um, funding, that hierarchy is is quite toxic there's almost a, a a ring fence there of who is and is not viable to do that work troublemaking and compassionate troublemaking um is often seen as this negative thing troublemakers are the bad people the naughty people um and part of it for me is about challenging that narrative and showing that actually yeah. troublemakers are the, are the change makers and are the people trying new things and i very much see people such as yourselves as um as troublemakers in that sense i'm interested to see how you see yourself within that frame well i'm talking to you now uh on, on a mobile phone in a car with my colleague jenny and we're engaged in some troublemaking right now <laughs> we're driving into the center of oxford with a boot full of banners which we are going to place around uh the city um which say, be a camarado this Christmas. It's a rubbish time of year for some people. Mm. And we think that's an important message because Christmas does cause some horrendous damage 
to people's lives. Uh, not that that's obviously the main message of Christmas, but we, we've seen it happen every year. Yeah. So we want to get that message out. Um, we haven't asked anyone for permission, um, and we're just going and we're putting these banners up everywhere. Um, no doubt some of them will be taken down, um, but hopefully the message will have been seen by a few people. And we decided to do this. We got them printed. We're in the car. It's Monday, and we're off. Uh, we didn't write a business plan about today. Mm. We're, we haven't got any particular outcomes we're measuring. Um, we just know this is a good thing to do. It didn't cost too much, and it's an afternoon of our time. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think I set up uh, and, and started this thing with, with Jenny and everyone because I didn't want to work within those restrictions anymore mm. because the higher up I got the corp- up the corporate ladder in charities or the government, um, the less change I felt I was part of and I just think particularly now in the current political climate it's good to remind ourselves that we don't need Whitehall's permission or the town hall's permission or funding to make shit happen and um, you know we can just go do it I've been out today but when I got home I opened uh, a little a little letter I had and it is my Christmas card from the team and uh, yours and Jenny's uh, signatures are, are both on there. So hello to Jenny right. as well. I will say hello to Jenny, who's here driving. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something, Dave. Can I tell you something, a serious point behind why we send the Christmas card yeah. um, So, you know, we uh, we don't want to make Greta Thunberg angry by putting paper out into the world. So we thought very long and hard about whether to do Christmas cards. But we, we did do them in the end because... Um, a couple of years back, um, a fella who's uh, been part of the Camarados movement right from the very beginning, and he lives in Blackpool, he's very chronically isolated, he's in his 30s, and uh, has an up-and-down relationship with alcohol, and it feeds into him to have panic attacks, and he won't leave the house. Um, but he, he, he was tempted out to be part of the Camarados movement. He, um, two years ago on Christmas Eve, need preparations in his class uh, to take his own life and he uh, before doing so he because he's the kind of chap he is he went outside to put his recycling out and on the way back into the house to finish the job on himself he uh, walked over our Christmas card which was on his mat he opened it he saw all our signatures he started crying and he took down everything he just erected um, wow. as part of his uh, fairly grim um, plans and uh, decided not to kill himself that day, saw Christmas through and got into me in the new year and told me the story. And he's still with us. He still has many downs, more than ups really, but um, he's still alive. And it just made us think, crikey, all that took was a Christmas card. Yeah, that's that's powerful. I think, um, so, so we have a, a mutual friend um slash mutual work colleague um called rian monteith and um ah. rian has has told the story before um about w- uh, somebody that she used to work with where um he received a christmas card and uh that was his first christmas card i think she said he'd ever received or at least in his adult life he'd ever, ever received and yeah. you kind of hear stories like that and you kind of think something that we take for granted or many of us will take for granted actually yeah. can be huge like like life affirming or life changing 
I don't think it actually occurs to us that something like that could be true. It seems so unusual that you yeah. could not receive any card. But but Rian's story is, is yeah, the same as, as with this fella. He We were the only card on his mantelpiece, which is yeah. really extraordinary and brings it home. I mean, the work Rian is doing is absolutely fabulous. We're big, big fans of, of hers. And um, we're, our missions very much coincide that the yeah. high-intensity user program uh, that helps keep people from constantly and multiply using A&E um, is it, it, actually very similar in ethos to us in, mm. in that, you know, what a surprise people who are calling 999 and using A&E, when you look into it that they don't have friends and purpose yeah. these two things are missing and yet the system does not cater for that eventuality they, they deal with things like housing and benefits and, and what have you uh, but, but actually, why is it so astonishing to believe that people need other people in their life and that, that that's what's going to sustain them. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? When you do your pop-up um, public living rooms and, and general, you know, you've gone into hospitals and you've done pop-up gazebo, uh, not gazebos, teepee tents. Teepees and, uh, and igloos, yeah. yeah. How does that tend to change an environment and what does it achieve within that environment? So we've found from doing the, the, the structures in hospitals, but also the public living rooms and communities, which, which are just really sofas, uh, armchairs, fairy lights, maybe a piano, is that uh, something happens to your brain chemistry when you walk into an environment and there are these things, you know, fairy lights, it does something to you. You, you think, I am not in a drop-in service, I'm not in a police station. I'm, I'm not in a place where a needs and risk assessment is going to be put in front of me. Um, when you see fairy lights or piano or sofa, you tend to kick off your shoes and relax. Um, the next thing that happens is you maybe see a message saying, be a camarado, and you think, well, what the hell does that mean? What it doesn't say is, be a patient, be a service user, be a doctor, be a student, be a professor, but, you know, there's no label. Um, and then we, you know, there might be a sign saying "Look out for each other," or we have this slogan: "The answer to our problems is each other." So you're relaxing, you kick your shoes off, you see these messages, you're starting to get the feeling something's going on here. And then the third and final thing that happens in the environment is, is stories, either people talking to you, or which tends to happen a lot in our communities, listening to other people's stories or why they come there. Or actually, and this happened in the hospitals, they read stories. We we have a post box, and you can leave a story. And um, people say the most amazing things. Like I came in here having lost a loved one and a complete stranger got me through the night. Um, you know, I'm stressed and I don't know what to do. I came in here and someone I've never known before calmed me down and told them their experience and I was able to get through with my day. You know, we've had extraordinary stories about that happening in these spaces. And I, I, I know there's a few of the stories that I've heard within that that have really resonated with me. One was... Um about a, a father who um, his kid's mum was um, about to pass away and he brought them in to the space to uh, just to, to, to be and to, to maybe talk about some of that, but just, just to be. That was on one of the hospital ones, I think. And um, that was that was powerful. Yeah, we went into one hospital recently and it had something called a, a bereavement zone, mm. which was an office divider and two plastic chairs and this was a zone that you went into when someone had died that you loved. And you just think, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, for people who don't want to sit in the chapel, there really isn't anywhere to go and you, other than, you know, Costa or pretty antiseptic waiting room. 
And if you think about the thousands of people going through hospitals today, as we record this podcast, who are going through unearthly trouble and tragedy, um, and you, you see a hospital and you see people come and go and it all looks very normal, but actually what are these people going through? That they're, they're, they're getting bad test results. Yeah. They're being told bad news. They're losing someone they love. Or they're going through an extraordinary life moment, like bringing new life into the world and getting the all clear. Um, but any of those things require some reflection. And, and they require some sharing with other people. And there really is very little uh, space to do that. In. And, and, you know, I would say, Dave, that this is something endemic in all of, of the public realm. Because we're so focused on outcomes that we forget the human. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and, and so I'm quite happy to be, a, as you call it, a compassionate troublemaker. <laughs> if it just reminds people of what they should know already. What we have, you know, avowedly decided not particularly to engage in existing systems we're not anti them we just think they're supposed to be something alongside mm. and if we uh, go and ask permission it, 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 it won't um, materialise and we'd rather it materialise and we think that our job is to be outside of the city walls people want to peer over the t- parapet and go actually that's quite good we'd like to join in then wonderful but that's where you go we're just not trying to change it from within the city walls um, because I've spent 20 years doing that and it goes in a similar place and um, and requires too much compromise and too much hunting for outcomes. Um, Forgive me, I'm about to go and decorate some railings with a banner now. So we're resuming our chat now about three weeks, four weeks after? Something like that. Time flies, eh? We're having fun. It's something like that since we last spoke. And we had to end the last uh, chat that we had. Um, because you were off doing a bit of a compassionate troublemaking of your own. <laughs> Do you find that you run into trouble um, with when you haven't got permission? Because permission has all sorts of power associated with the idea of permission um, and who owns the right to space and all this kind of stuff. And be that kind of putting up banners or be it literally the, the pop-up spaces themselves. Well, um, I think we... Uh... <laughs> I'm not sure we've we've tried the permission route that often, so I wouldn't know what to compare it to. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, but uh, what we no, I, I can tell you our experience, and we've absolutely messed up in, in the past. But actually, we've, we've we've had a good run of things as well. So basically, the, with, with the banners at Christmas, it uh, we put ten up around uh, pretty central places in Oxford and and uh, in the around about, and um, two of them were taken down and disappeared, and um, eight of them stayed up. And we collected them up and, and took them back with us to, to do another year. So, you know, we had to accept that some people wouldn't like it and would dispose of our stuff. Uh, but I think, obviously, other people in pretty prominent locations thought, uh, I mean, they certainly couldn't miss it, but they obviously thought it was a decent enough message, so they didn't do anything about it. We weren't contacted. You could absolutely contact us. Our details were on there, um, but nobody got in touch with us to, to say it was bad news. Um, that wasn't the case uh the previous Christmas, we decorated 16 bus stops in Oxford. Um, we also had camarados in Middlesbrough, Blackpool and Baltimore and somewhere in Sweden also doing something, some activism on bus stops uh, to get people to think about looking out for each other at this very tough time. And that wasn't as successful in the sense that it was it was actually really great fun. And it was whilst we were decorating the bus stops and 
And, and for a couple of hours afterwards, everyone in the street was on a high and buzzing because you've got these bus stops with tinsel and baubles and um, mm-hmm. blow up uh, candy canes, uh, which is great. But um, someone had obviously put a call in to Clear Channel, who were the people who do the advertising in the bus stops. And literally by mid-morning, there was a guy driving around all of them, ripping down our decorations and either binning them or taking them home for himself. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. We, uh, we, we, he, he'd, he'd missed a couple of bus stops, so they stayed up for the rest of the day, but were gone by the next day. But by and large, most of them were pulled down. So you could say we should have asked permission, but then I doubt if that's the way Clear Channel behave, I doubt they would have said yes. There was a nice little um, uh, uh, punchline to that story, though, which is um, by complete chance, uh, uh, we bumped into the guy as he was tearing them down on one bus stop. And again, by complete chance, we noticed the van he was driving is parked outside the house opposite one of our staff members um, in where she lives. So we, we knew where he lived. So oh, right. The guy who was tearing down our, our decorations. So we, uh, so we sent him a Christmas card and uh, said, no hard feelings, mate. Uh, have a nice Christmas. The troublemaking we did in London was very surprising. Which one was that? So we, uh, we set up pop-up public living rooms in Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, Covent Garden, uh, and with just a, a big beanbag sofa, um, a, a standard lamp, and a big frame saying public living room. We were giving out paper, the Camarada's Chronicle. And um, much to our amazement, nobody bothered us in Piccadilly Circus, and we were there for almost an hour. Uh, and... The other locations were pretty much the same, except for Trafalgar Square, where, not surprisingly, within five minutes they were on us. But they were nice, and they said, you know what, Trafalgar Square is owned by the Mayor of London. If you just go 100 yards that way, we won't bother you. So we set up outside the National Gallery on the top of the steps and stayed there for an hour. So in a funny sort of way, when people realize what you're doing and that you're not doing anything harmful... Um, they tend to be on your side in making it possible. Not the case with, with, with our bus stops, but, um, but you know, I, I guess sometimes you're successful, sometimes you're not. I think that, that point for me is a really interesting one. And, and when we talk about compassionate troublemaking, it's merging these two ideas. One idea being um, dissenting, you know, in one form or another, being an obstacle to the status quo, but also thinking about the approach one takes to do that and trying to... You know, for me, compassion is is one thing that is is good to treat other people well, even unfortunately if they're not able to treat you that well or if they're not willing to. But the other thing for me is I often find it more effective to make you a point. Sometimes the 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 more challenging route can lead to uh, somebody shutting you down straight away. Whereas as you've said there, you know, you're still saying having this message. You weren't adapting your message all. But because you were kind of careful about what your message is, um, you found support there in one form or another, I guess. I guess we were appealing uh, to what you would call the compassionate side of uh, people within systems. Um, Mm -hmm. It would be a a huge generalization to think that everybody who is uh, within the system um, is not into what we're doing, you know, or doesn't have a side of that would like to be more human. Um, and so I guess we're giving people an opportunity to slightly turn a blind eye. Um, I think the, 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 
the opposition to what we're doing would say, why wouldn't you do it properly and be considerate of others and get a proper permit? And um, I guess it's, you know, 20 years of experience has taught that um, not only does that take up a huge amount of time and resources, but um, it pretty much always ends up in a no um, or it becomes adapted or co-opted by someone else. Um, and actually, there is an energy to doing something a little bit naughty that attracts people. Are you able to kind of talk about that a bit more? Because it's something that I find, because I, I agree completely, but I think it's quite a logical response to say, well, why don't you follow that route? But as, as you've said there, that route has so many obstacles to it and, and you're giving power to somebody um, that I think is at the heart of what we're trying to challenge. But I, I like the idea of kind of the, the energy that's palpable um, when you do things a bit differently. So what does that tend to, what experience have you had with the pop-up spaces, with that energy, and what has it led to? I'll give you an example of, uh, you know, we have a lot of failures in the development of our social movement, and we're very open about it because we're big on outing failure as not a big deal, mm -hmm. and it's part of the human condition. And what's one of our principles is it's okay to fail. Um, and so uh, we were had a public living room, and we were encouraged to open a cafe inside. It was in a library. So we opened a cafe uh, and then, of course, uh, regulations uh, say that you have to check the temperature of the fridges. You have to have a certain number of people with basic food and hygiene. Yeah, completely understand that because you don't want to poison people. Uh, but because we hadn't gone down the sort of kind of cake sale, pay it forward, very relaxed, just put some food out that you've baked because it actually became an enterprise with a till and something called, you know, a sign over the door saying cafe. We had to enter a world of regulations, which then meant we had to hire staff, which then created a totally wrong dynamic in the space. And um, these people then got themselves uniforms. We didn't want them to have uniforms. They went into town and made themselves uniforms. They started behaving like staff, uh, albeit very nicely, but they, they stopped living by our principles. They started fixing people's lives, taking them home with them, putting them on their sofa. Um, people who came into the public living room stopped behaving in a mutual aid sort of way looking out for each other because hey that's the staff's job and we sort of drifted into becoming a dodgy drop-in which mm. different principles and and it sort of started to chip away at it because we had to form various regulations um and so i think you can end up going down a path to create something that is not you as well if you <laughs> if you do it the official route when you and me first um, started talking about Camarados, a question that I asked you, which I had to get my head around, was um, how you ensure there isn't the facilitatedness of a space. The fact that a community can develop that together, because all I'd known up until the point where we'd started talking was facilitation. And I found kind of both in our conversations and also in other conversations, my understanding of that has really opened up and, and, and looking at what that looks like um and that for me is a fascinating thing so how, what key aspects do you think there are so that a space can remain open like that the language you use um if people will come in and relax if you use certain language and they won't if you use other language um that's a huge one um that the three main elements that we use to vaguely curate the space are the environment, the messaging, which is the language, and the stories. So the environment, when you see fairy lights, 
and you see a piano and you see sofas, your brain reacts in a certain way. Uh, um, so the environment is a big, big part of it. And we have lots of inhuman environments, particularly in places where people go in states of crisis. And then the second one is messaging, just very subtle messaging, not in your face messaging, do this, do that notices, but just little things that say, look out for each other, be a camarado, a little chalk, a frame, something very relaxed that wouldn't be out of place at a jumble sale or something. So it doesn't feel official. And it might just say, come in, chat, relax, look out for each other. Um, when one of the places we put a public living room and the people there change the language to it's time to talk hashtag mental health awareness week, um, our numbers plummeted that week. Um, Interesting. And, and it was actually a public living room where we had an infrared counter counting people in and out and the numbers plummeted. Whereas when they turned it back to chat, relax, look out for each other, we had a thousand people a week. Um, so language and messaging. And then the final one is stories. We get people to share their stories and display them. Don't know how well that's working. If I'm to be honest with you, David, I think that in hospitals, that's been off the chart in terms of success, incredible personal testimony. And when people read things about other people's tough times, um, it really sets the tone for the space. But um, I'm not sure in the communities whether that's really working. It's something we're addressing at the next um, residential that we have with people is, is how do we get stories to be more part of community living rooms, working in hospitals really well. Why is it not working so well in community settings? However, those are the three sort of main areas, the environment, the messaging and the stories. And what that does is that tells people that they're not in a drop in clinic. They're not in a service. They're not in a, you know, in a police station. You know, it, it says relax. And you sent a, uh an email out recently saying um, the, the requesting information from, you know, people that are heading up the Camarado's uh, pub, the pop-up wellbeing spaces and, and the public living rooms, um, because you still need to gather data to go and say like the effectiveness of what you're doing. Yet those spaces that you're trying to create aren't data driven spaces. Um, how do you merge those two worlds? There's no easy answer, except we're trying wherever we can to do data gathering invisibly, mm. uh, humanly, uh, and, and pragmatically. The, the, the last one was the reason we sent the bloody survey out. I'll tell you what, mate. We really tore our hair out and, and our, uh, had much gnashing of teeth when we sent that email with the survey out because surveys is not very us. But... Um, we were getting down to the wire and we'd had some real challenges with our learning strategy. And actually, we were coming around to a funding round. And it was one of those cases where we thought we really just need to know if this is working or not and yeah. prove to others, um, you know, that we what we believe, which is that it is. And so we kind of took a deep breath, closed our eyes and clicked send. And I guess in our defense, we sent it to people who we knew were big on the you know, movement um, champions and they wouldn't mind, and it only took five minutes. So yeah. we kind of felt that was okay. We absolutely wouldn't have sent one out that took an hour to people who we barely knew. Um, we, we don't want health and well-being questionnaires in our public living rooms because that turns it into a different kind of space. It affects the model, and it doesn't become a no-outcome space. Um, what we prefer is really invisible methods, um, like gathering stories, which is, of course, actually... Uh, qualitative data, which you can do a thematic analysis on, but you do it in a very, you know, hey, tell other people about your tough times. It's sort of part of the model. 
and uh, you know hidden infrared uh, beams that break to see how many people come in, but you wouldn't know it's there. We try and do it invisibly. We're working with uh, Sheffield Hallam University uh, to get their help on it. Um, this stuff's not easy, but I think you've got to try and just be constantly aware of how your techniques potentially taint your model. Um, you know, how, in, how invasive uh, and in people's faces is your data gathering? That's what we ask ourselves all the time. Have you found external funders to be reciprocative to that approach and to those issues? Uh, so far, yes, we've been lucky. Uh, has that been challenging? Yes. We had a big challenge with a funder who wanted um, detailed KPIs and outcome framework and everything and uh, something that would be, we would be measured against in two years' time. Uh, we iterate so quickly and gather our data so strangely that that didn't make sense for us. Um, so I said so, and they were like, no, you've still got to fill it in. So I said, fine, we're pulling out of the process. Um, and I took a, it was a game of chicken. I mean, basically, they phoned back the next day and said, okay, leave it blank. Um, Interesting. I, Interesting. I knew that this funder had already invested six months in trying to uh, fund us. Uh, and it was a week before the final panel decision and me saying, fine, we're pulling out, called their bluff. And I think there's a whole thing about power that's kind of like flexible and power that's not and how you kind of differentiate and how you call a bluff to differentiate power. And, and, and that's a fascinating thing that you got that, that result. Next five years for Camarados, and I know this is one of those really, really big questions, and you kind of go, oh, you know, God only knows. But where where do you see the journey going, you know, in a variety of different kind of ways? What are the pinnacle points for you, do you think? Well, we've seen a, a real explosion of take-up, um, for us anyway, from, from in the last year. And we'd love that to continue, and we'd love to grow the scale of our residentials and our and our ability to connect people. I'd like to see more Camarados connecting like you have been in your uh, region um, without the central um, support team uh, being involved at all. Um, so we'd, we'd like to see that. That would be a big win over the next couple of years is to see Camarados in regions holding their own campfires where they get together and discuss their living rooms. Um, that would be wonderful. Um, I, I think our international work will grow. We've been sending boxes out to New Zealand and out to Germany in the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, I don't particularly have any interest in profile. Uh, I, I'd rather just numbers of communities growing and interacting and connecting each other, keeping the work on the street level. Um, I, I, I know this sounds a bit arrogant, but I'm, I, I expect I suspect the more people take it up and it becomes a, a thing, I'm going to have to refuse quite a lot of um, large sector bodies who are going to want to co-opt it and scale it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think trying to stay true to our principles and not have our head turned uh, will be another challenge. Um, yeah. I think the uh, central office will reduce in size as the movement takes on more of the work of the movement. Um, you know, People like me will have to disappear over time because um, I'm uncomfortable with how much my voice is around and I would prefer the voice of the movement to be around more. So um, I have to say we're all learning. I've never set up a social movement before. So uh, all I know is better things happen when I get out the bloody way, <laughs> uh, which I have to say is 
existentially a bit of a, uh, a, a, a tough one. Um, you know, when one derives much of one's personal approbation from being involved. It's a, weird, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because I've kind of realized for myself, very, very similar. I think I've always been drawn to the idea of collaborative work. Um, when I used to make content on YouTube, it was it was very much as many different voices as possible, all adding into it. And there was a point that I had to kind of step my voice back from that. I think I think in this world that we live in, where you need to, uh, you know, empower yourself and put yourself forward and 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 use your voice, it's it's this kind of difficult point where you do want to do that, but also you want to do other people's voices as well, and and the kind of difficulties. That originate from that but i've never heard anybody saying so actively in the sense of i'm going to be um you know stepping into the into back into the darkness and fading away kind of thing so it must be difficult to let go of you know the, this project that you started it's actually a daily struggle as well because um i had to step to one side in terms of the daily running of the office and the work that we do and my colleague Jenny is the chief exec because I was suffering from founder syndrome, which means mm -hmm. I, I have an opinion on everything 24 hours a day, whether I'm awake or asleep, and I express it to everybody. And um, that is not fun to be around. Yeah. And, and so I, I also realized I brought my own corrosive power to situations because Camarados uh, was my idea. And um, so people know that. And that creates an imbalance when you're having a conversation in their mind. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I think it's all very much on the level. Uh, they don't. And that, um, isn't, that's a real negative for me because I really want it to be a mutual thing and I really want their opinion valued. So I started to find that difficult. I, you know, and my own behavior, you know, I'm, it, it was getting in the way. And so I've, I've had to constantly regulate myself and try and step out and step away and let other people fill the void. It, it, it's not easy. I'm a very hands-on person. And I realized that my operating system was pulls apart from my belief system. Uh, my belief system said, get out of the way. My operating system said, dive in. Uh, so it was uh, really, it's been a big struggle for me, this. But I mean, I believe in it, but it has taken its toll on me personally. Yeah, I can imagine. In that regard, what is your key for self-care? I set up Camarados with someone I'd known for 20 years. And that's Jenny, who is the chief exec. And um, she's known me actually longer, 25 years. So she uh, she's not remotely impressed. Um, and so because she remembers me getting drunk as a student, <laughs> so, she, she'll happily sit me set down and say, darling, you're being a nightmare. Uh, and uh, she's just one of these wonderful uh, human beings who has a huge amount of grace about her. And therefore, I desperately want Jenny to be happy and I want her to be successful in her role as the boss. So that's my self-care is I, I have someone who I trust to, to run the ship and trust to tell me the truth. So that has been uh, absolutely key. And then I have uh, an amazing, you know, uh, wife and family who are on my side and and also speak truth to me so that keeps me massively grounded and then third and finally outside of work and outside of family my great love is music and i play the piano and i write my own music and i play in in jazz groups and um i have a an abiding love of my hero oscar peterson so i just put his music on and everything is okay i like that i didn't realize you're a piano player it's one instrument i've always 
you know, have fallen in love with a little bit. And I've kind of thought if, uh, if I could learn to play, I, I would. I can see the benefit of it. Let's get together. <laughs> have a have a jam session. The other thing, the other intro I've always wanted to play because I love it is the double bass. And because oh. I'm six foot six as well, I'm quite a good Man. size to uh, to do it. You're mixed for it. Double bass. Yeah. Come on, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a Camarado's um yeah. Camarado's band, eh? Um and, and I think kind of one thing I'd I'd like to uh, say at, at this point we because you mentioned your family there. I was so impressed we're on Christmas Day you and your family were actually out there in the community. And I think that spoke more to me than probably most of the things that I've seen in, in you know, how many years of uh, exploring these worlds we live in. Um, so, yeah, so I thought that was remarkable. Oh, thanks, mate. Uh, actually, to some extent, that's by far the best answer to the self-care question as well is, the principle, the number one principle we hold in Camarados is that when you're having a tough time, go help someone else. Uh, because the looking out for someone else when you're having a tough time is restorative. Mm. Um, I find Christmas difficult. Um, and I really struggle with the whole concept and the whole thing. And as a father and... I, I, I worry about it. And it and um, my wife turned to me and said, look, uh, I'm not having another Christmas of you being a pain. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we've got to do something about it. And um, so I thought I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to go and look out for others and that will sort me out. And so uh, we set up a public living room just on Christmas Day. And all we had to do was hire a community centre for four hours, get a bit of live music, a bit of Christmas cake, put up some fairy lights and... Um, I thought maybe five or six people would show up who were having a bit of a hard time. It was absolutely heaving. We had about 78 yes. people come. And um, it was absolutely lovely. And the thing I'm most proud of, David, is that you couldn't see who, were the, who was the person struggling and who was the person who just popped in. Um, so everybody just felt on the level. And that was great. There, there were a, a bunch of people who I know were having a very hard Christmas, but you just they blended in with everyone else and they felt at home. It was lovely. I think I think it really nicely brings home this idea of any of us can face trouble as well. I think with so many issues, the one kind of I always link into is homelessness, and people can say, "Well, that's that's other people, that's that's out there." Whereas actually, we don't realise how close we are to um, all sorts of difficulties, and and I do feel like we're living in a world at the moment that distances itself from that reality. And one thing I've always liked about Camarados is the idea of bridging experiences and, and moving away from this idea of well I'm here to help you and you are the here to receive the help kind of thing to end on I, I kind of guess if you could give any advice for the compassionate troublemakers out there be it compassionate troublemakers that are already in the mix and are doing their social change or people that are wanting to take that next step and are wanting to kind of get involved in this world that at times can feel really chaotic uh what would what would your words of wisdom be in in a desperate aim to be pithy and axiomatic uh think less do more and uh and get a kick out of it uh whether that's um uh you know putting a sticker on a lamppost or uh, uh buying five cups of coffee from costa and uh, just giving it to complete strangers or, you know, just uh, having a chat with someone for absolutely no reason at all. Just do do some act uh, and see how it feels 
and then do it again or step it up or try something else. If you sit down and write a business plan for social change, um, the, the troublemaking will never happen. Uh, mm. you, the, the, the best thing for Camarados was we, we did something before we thought about it and then we messed it up and we thought, wow, how did that feel? And we put the kettle on and we talked about it and then we fixed it and did it again. And um, I, I, I just worry that the, the architecture of social change and ideas is it becomes a very attractive prospect to sit and talk about stuff and then it becomes quite terrifying to enact this enormous vision of yours mm. so so don't have an enormous vision have a really tiny act that you do and then chip away at it from there um, and don't give it the pressure of it having to be perfect i like that and remember that you know i don't know if any of you are familiar with a a, a, a story it's sometimes good to talk about stories which aren't camarados because the last thing I want to suggest is that we're the only folk doing this because we're absolutely yeah. not. But, you know, um, I think Johnny Benjamin is this guy who's become a campaigner. About, I, know, I know Johnny Benjamin. He's uh, very good. Well, well, you know, that, that entire Johnny Benjamin story pivots on a guy walking past and saying, it's going to be okay, you know. Mm. And that, that, that's it. A, a smile and a small comment uh, can utterly turn around someone's day and their life. Um, and, um, we don't talk about it cause we, we like to be terribly grown up and we like, uh, uh, hard data and, um, I don't know, hard outcomes and all this kind of language, but, um, you know what, actually a, a little bit of encouragement at the right time can completely change things for someone. And, um, I think we're just trying to create as many instances of that. And I hope people feel empowered, to, I don't, you know, to go and do that kind of stuff when they realize how much a small act can do. Lovely. I can't think of a better place to end on um so thank you very much for joining us i think if anyone wants to hear anything more from you one of the greatest and i've already told you this won't be anything new one of the greatest talks i've ever seen was your talk at the meaning conference this year um and and it was just kind of a really if you want to find out more about what the camarados the idea behind the camarados movement it's a perfect summarization of of that um is there anything else you want to share before we go or it's that good? No, I wish you all the best for the rest of this great podcast. Thank you so much for talking to me and spreading the word. I really am very grateful indeed. So there you have it. Another podcast uh, in the can. And personally, listening back to it, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think there's a lot of learning there. Um, something that is interesting within compassionate job making is as the episodes build up and, and the people we talk to builds up, it's laid a lot of foundations down to have follow-up conversations, both with math and with other people. And he says this himself, you know, we don't want it to come across as, well, this is the only experience or this is the only approach that matters. One thing to note is the recording the first half was done before christmas this was a while ago and the uh, more recent half was i think in january um so it was before covid really hit us hard um something the camarados movement have introduced since and something i mentioned earlier is spoon rooms and it takes all of the ideas that math talks about with the public living rooms and puts it into a virtual space on zoom um, and people are free to make their own spoon rooms but what we also do is we do our Saturday spoon rooms um, and the link for a bit more of description on that will be in the in the um, description below. And it'll be really, really nice to see some people there. And it could be that people have come across this episode through that community and through the, the spoon rooms. Um, 
the swimming rooms give a really nice space for us to just support each other and talk to each other and, and talk about the highs and the difficulties and all this. And, and that for me is the central part of Camarados that Math talked about uh, more, um, which is this idea of like, you don't need to be an expert because we all are, like we all almost all are our own experts for supporting each other because being present for another and doing something to help another and then allowing somebody to do something for us is an expertise in on itself. Um, so again, thanks to Math for, for joining us for that conversation. I, I have no doubt it'll probably be somebody we, we return to a later, a later episode. Um, as always, uh, links to social media, um, will be in the, in the down below, but, uh, you know, if you search compassionate troublemaking anyway, you will find us and it'd be really good to hear people's input and to, to get the, get the story moving further. Um, until next time, until next week, and hopefully you'll join us next week. So until next time, talk to you later. Ta-ra.